Hey everybody, and welcome to Crime and Spirits Podcast, your one-stop shop for spooky stories, handcrafted cocktails, and all things true crime. I'm your host, Bree. And I am your other host, Suze. I'm also the resident bartender here at Crime and Spirits. Because not only do we bring you a new case or topic of interest every week, but we also teach you a little something about mixology along the way. Woohoo, because I mix up a drink that ties in in some way with our theme for the week, and then walk you through how to make one for yourself so you can sip right along with with us. We've been friends for years and one of our favorite things to do is mix up something delicious and throw on a true crime documentary, which is basically what this podcast has become. It is, however, better research than that, <laughs> we promise, yes. cross our hearts. <laughs> we also have a script written out that we mostly follow. Mostly. Still, you can expect some tangents here and there. We also managed to find a way to mention Criminal Minds at least once, if not multiple times per episode. We gotta give Dr. Spencer Reed all the love. Yes, girl. And you also can't forget the cursing because we definitely curse on this show. We try to keep things a little bit more conversational. Think less like Dateline and more like Girls' Night. Just replace the catty gossip with actual facts. And maybe just a little catty gossip. So come hang out with us, learn a little something with us every Sunday, and make sure to join us on Instagram or Facebook at Crime and Spirits Pod. That is the word and. We'd love to chat with you about, I mean, whatever, really, but mostly true crime. So buckle up, buttercups. Sip tight. And let's get on with the show. to welcome you to a very merry christmas episode of crime and spirits podcast we are your hostesses with the very mostesses my name is brie and i'm Suze. happy christmas everybody Ooh, christmas christmas if you celebrate yeah if not happy holidays yeah. to you <laughs> or also just like hey thanks for hanging out right as always we appreciate you we are recording this a few days before the celebrations, mm-hmm. and it's a hectic week for us. It sure is. Service industry people know all too well. Everybody's yeah. home from school. They're all on vacation. Mm-hmm. They're all stressed with their Christmas presents. They need coffee. They need booze. <laughs> all it's, the things that we It's provide. only Tuesday, and I'm like, <laughs> yep, it's been a rough one. <laughs> Honestly. Honestly. And we're supposed to get a snowstorm, so yay for that. Can hardly wait. (laughs) Super excited. But other than that, I am looking forward to spending some time with my in-laws. They are pretty great, so that'll be fun. It's going to be fun, yeah. Yeah. So, since this episode comes out on Christmas Day, we wanted to shy away from all the heavy, like, murder. We're going to go murder light if you will. Uh, I love it. <laughs> this is still a true crime podcast after all, so we kind of put together an, in, an anthology of sorts. Mm-hmm. We've got four different crimes slash cases that occurred on or around or has to do with Christmas in some way, shape, or form. Today's episode's going to have a similar structure to our deep dives. Mm-hmm. We're going to start with a string of art thefts in New York City, and we're going to work our way backwards in time. We're going to dive into the events that led to a bloody Christmas in L.A., the unsolved case of the Sodder children, which is my personal favorite to talk about, and we're going to be ending with the Santa Claus bank robbery. So, as per usual, here's today's warning. We are going to be discussing a few robberies, a mysterious house fire where allegedly five children died, and an incident of police brutality, and all the things that those items will entail. You guys know that we never mean any disrespect to victims or the families of those involved. We do try and keep things a little bit lighter and have a good time while having some really tough discussions. 
We enjoy talking about how awful our justice system can be, and sometimes the rage it incites in us can be funny. It's so awful. Downright comical. <laughs> um, who are we to keep all of our awesomeness to ourselves? I Plus, mean, who doesn't love a good learning um, how to make a great cocktail, you know, every seriously. now and then? So, if you like what you are about to hear, please consider subscribing to our podcast and following us on social media. Now, I really love a festive, fun drink, and I am really ready for this because that's exactly what I have in front it's of me. It's so pretty. It's gorgeous. Um, so, because we're talking Christmas crimes, we're going to be making a Christmas drink. Um, we are using our fave gin in the whole entire world, oh, Empress. It's the purple it's one. the best one. So good. Um, this recipe is actually courtesy of our friends at Empress. I saw it on Instagram. I said, we've got to do that for the podcast. And they said, you you do that and you let us know what you think. So yes. here we go. <laughs> it's called, I think, like the happy snowman or something like that. Mm. He's a boozy snowman. I like He's it. He's getting a little bit crunk. Um, <laughs> we did tweak the recipe just a smidge. So first things first, you'll need to make a simple syrup. The one specifically to this recipe is a clove simple syrup. Interesting. You know cloves, they look like tiny little spikes, like Yay. little nails. <laughs> yep. So all you do is you make a traditional simple syrup, one ounce of sugar, one ounce of water, simmer till the sugar dissolves. In this instance, you want to throw in the cloves when you mix it all up, let it simmer for about 15 minutes, kill the heat, let it cool. Stored in a container in the in the fridge. So, question about infusing. Since mm -hmm. I personally want to make some for my own coffee beverages and whatnot, do you put the addition in after everything's been dissolved? Nope. Or all the ingredients go in the pot at the all same together. time, mm -hmm. and they all do. Th okay. Yep. And because we're using cloves, and my cinnamon sticks were right um, on the shelf below it, we have a clove cinnamon simple syrup. It's actually one of my specialties for Christmas time. I make mm. it usually for Bud every Christmas. It's good stuff. Easy peasy. Um, so once you've got all that, you'll need your Empress Gin, lemon juice, and coconut milk. If you want almond milk, you can use that as well, but I went for the coconut milk because that was what the recipe called for. This drink is super easy. You just add everything into your shaker. So two ounces of the Empress Gin, one ounce of the coconut milk, three quarters of an ounce of your clove cinnamon simple syrup, and then a half an ounce of lemon juice. Mix it all up, shake it, strain it over some fresh ice in the glass of your choice. We are using a Dollar Tree glass because it's <laughs> sort of round and they're $1.25. So. And also, why does the Dollar Tree have like they do some really nice glass have some. Their rocks glasses are phenomenal. They're my favorite glasses that I have. But you, we wanted something round because it's supposed to be a snowman. A snowman so, yep. Um, once it's in your glass, you can garnish it with two little cloves, like little eyeballs. <laughs> they were, they, to me, they look like as if the snowman melted. Right. And it's the arms. Right. Oh, okay. I could see <laughs> that too. And then we threw a little bit of shaved coconut on top, and I found this most amazing. It's edible dust. It's glitter. It looks like, it's like it so looks like sparkly snow. And it so comes shimmery. out in little puffs of beautifulness from this <laughs> little thing. It's from Alma's Culinary Company. I got it at Walmart. I'm now obsessed with it. Oh, we're about so to So like prepare <laughs> for silver drinks left, right, and center. Make so many reels yes. of us just spraying this shit. And it's I'm excited that, to that's try. it. That's it's such an easy drink. Let me know what you think. Oh. Mm-hmm. That is such an interesting flavor profile. 
So you expect it to be like sweet and milky because yes. it, it looks basically like purple milk. Yeah. <laughs> like a light purple milk. Mm -hmm. But it's got a really nice herbaly flavor from the cloves and the cinnamon. The gin itself too. Mm -hmm. But it's a it's a very nice mix. And it's a little tart with the lemon juice. I was gonna say that lemon juice really adds like a nice little cut through. Like a zing. It lightens it up. I think without yeah. that it might just be kind of bleh. That's delicious. So thank you, Empress. Yeah, we thank you, tested Empress. it out. We love it. We're gonna probably make a hundred more drinks. Oh my god, I love that gin so much. We love your gin. We're I was obsessed. never gonna, like and now I can call myself a gin drinker. It's true. And we I'm drink the gin because it is good gin. It's fantastic. Heck yeah. All right. Alrighty, are you ready? I'm so ready. Let's get into it. Like I mentioned, we are going to start with a string of scandalous art thefts that took place in December of 1990 in New York City. The pieces stolen were high-priced works of art, and they just seem to have vanished into thin air. The estimated value of the four stolen paintings came out to $4.3 million, which is over $8 million in 2022 money. It's like I so I started researching like a little <laughs> bit about a couple of the artists whose works went missing yeah. and like my jaw literally just dropped to the ground like I the art world is mind-boggling yeah y'all are nuts y'all are crazy <laughs> I love it like oh, I, I love do. viewing arts mm -hmm. I love creating my own versions of art but right. like paintings but I'm not paying millions of dollars mm -mm. whole other level sorry guys I don't get mm -hmm. it all right, so these robberies took place during a one-week time span. The first one happened on the 17th of December. The painting stolen was an untitled piece by Willem de Kooning, created in 1962. At the time, this painting was actually being displayed at a West 23rd Street art gallery. The director of the gallery, Peter Bonnier, was an art dealer known for being the first to open a gallery space in Chelsea. I don't know much about New York, but Chelsea is the spot to be, from what I've heard. It's one of the spots to be. Maybe at this point it wasn't. I don't think it was. The way that it... <laughs> right. From what I read, it yeah. was not the place to be Ew. back in the day. <laughs> um, so on this particular day, Peter was showing one of his fancy art friends around, trying to get him to lease a space in the, in the neighborhood as well. Everything went accordingly. Those involved with the deal began to celebrate with a bottle of wine. And while they were distracted, the art thief rode the elevator right up to Peter's office, which just so happened to have this $750,000 painting in it. What? Whoever committed this crime was actually able to steal the piece without leaving a single trace. They literally just rolled up to the office mm -hmm. and they were like, oh, you know what? Let me take this painting. Just right off the wall. Okay, great. Completely fine. Ballsy. That, that must have been that one is. hell of a bottle of That's wine. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> that too. Two days later, on December 19th, two more paintings are stolen. The first was titled The Eye is the First Circle. It was created by Lee Krasner, which was the wife of Jackson Pollock, which is an American painter, if you're not familiar. He likes to splatter things. He's one of the splattery ones, right? I love it. I'm pretty, I do too. I love... Abstract art is probably my favorite. Um, I did read up on the wife and the husband, and he was crazy. Yes. He was a crazy person. I, not a very nice man. <laughs> I vaguely remember that from the few art classes. She sounded pretty taken. cool, but... Yeah, she seems all right. Mm -hmm. So that particular painting was valued at $1 million at the time of its theft. The second was titled Sales Girls, which was created by David Saul. 
That was valued at $400,000. So when they were stolen, both pieces had actually been hanging in an apartment. John Keim, who was the director of the Robert Miller Gallery at the time, had a private showroom in his home that would often display works that were owned by or consigned to the gallery. That's like a whole other level, having some shit. I was like, aren't you fancy? Hmm. (laughs) Sometime between 11 a.m. and 6.15 that evening, a couple of people broke into the home and the showroom itself. They actually cut the Krasner piece out of its frame like you see in the movies. The horror. (laughs) They grabbed the cell painting and they just left without even closing the door, which according to all the people involved, was the most heinous part of this whole thing. It just cracked me up. I was like, talk about snooty. They were just like... Gave, it just read snooty to How me. How dare they? Pretty much. They stole my million dollar worth of painting, and they didn't even close the they door. They cut it out. Okay, so in, in their defense, the painting was ginormous. Like, there's a picture of the painting in one of the articles I read yeah. with a man walking in front of it, and the painting is, like, humongously mm. larger than him. I wonder how so they did that. So, it's a big piece of work, but it... And how long it took. Right. I have so many questions, and unfortunately, there's just not a lot of information about it. Um, (laughs) So there was an insurance company that got involved in the investigations of these, and they actually offered a $50,000 reward for any information that led to the recovery of both works. Um, The final heist took place on the 21st. A piece titled The Apprentice, but in French, I think. Um, it was created by Chaim Soutine in 1922. It was stolen right right in a delivery truck. <laughs> At the time, the painting was being transported to a framing shop on East 91st Street. There was a scheduled stop at a gallery on East 79th Street before getting to the frame shop. While the truck driver was inside the gallery, someone actually just rode off in the whole damn truck. The whole truck. Painting included, <laughs> like, room, room, bye. Um, the truck was found in Harlem a few days later, but the painting was still missing. I just, the picture that painted when I was going over your research was just so I picture a me. robber in, like, black and white stripes with a little eye mask. Like, yes. Do, 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 like, creeping up to just like, be like. What was it, that character, the Hamburglar? Mm-hmm. Yep, I could see it. <laughs> totally that. <laughs> After the truck incident, it became somewhat clear that whoever was pulling off all of this had prior knowledge of how the art world worked. They had to have, at the very least, known when and where that truck was going to be that Mm -hmm. day. So these heists took some serious planning, and they weren't likely done on impulse. This whole thing left the art community completely rocked. Additionally, it's pretty hard to sell works of art that have been stolen, so, you know... Who knows what that means about the people that we're talking about? Like, I think Sue's put in their research, like, you have to be pretty ballsy to steal a work of art and then attempt to sell it. Hell yeah. What else are you doing with it? Well, and obviously the authorities had their ear to the ground trying to, like, figure out where these works of art have gone, but it's literally like they just disappeared into the void. Literally that. So there was the a quote from the president of the insurance company that was heading the investigation into the disappearances of these pieces his name was harold smith he said that it was quote straight very strange that they went after that painting good paintings are being stolen and they seem to put into a deep freeze somewhere so i found that was really interesting because then he goes on to say at some point 
they'll start being laundered and find their way into countries that have a low statute of limitations, Mm -hmm. which totally makes sense. It sure do. I was just like shaking my damn head. Because, again, the balls it takes. Well, especially it's such a long con Mm -hmm. to hold on to something for however long you'd have to to run out. At this point, it's been 30 years, you know what I mean? Right. That's bananas. Oh, gross. Why'd you say that? I know. (laughs) Just to make us feel old. Move along, (laughs) sir. All right. So, the Krasner piece was eventually found, and it was able to be restored. It went back to remain in the collection of Robert Miller's wife before she consigned it to Sotheby's in May of 2019, which is not that long ago. Within the same month, the painting was purchased for $11.6 million. That's That's insane. Which actually made the artist, Lee, one of the few female artists in the eight-digit club. So Mm. fucking good for her. She deserves that. that. Um, The Sal piece was also recovered, which occurred in 1991. However, the two other paintings actually still remain lost to this day. Crazy. Nobody knows at this point if the cases are connected in any way, and there's no answers to be had. Like, none. No, literally zero. That that was it. That was it. And I Googled, and I Googled, and I Googled, (laughs) and I could not find any more information. That was literally it. I think that's so crazy. Mm Mm-hmm. Because I think they're just waiting. What if they just pop up someday? Isn't that wild? Apparently, that's what happens. That's bananas. I never knew that. Hanging in your bedroom? Like, what? What? (laughs) You hide it behind a wall? Like, I'm just curious what you do with it. Honestly, though, especially, like, I mean, if that one painting was as giant as you said it was, like, what do you do with that? How Roll do you it up like a carpet that? and put it in your closet? This like, is I don't insane. understand. I have so many questions. It's wild. And they got away with it. That, right? God only knows where those other two paintings are. I know. I shudder. That's insane. I know. So, next, we are going to be talking about the aptly named Bloody Christmas. This one's about to get me real hype. This is an (laughs) event that occurred on Christmas Day in 1951. Because literally, while I was reading her research, I then did some more research of my own, just because I was so curious Mm -hmm. about the moment leading up to this. And then I just became enraged. Well, so, (laughs) the thing she's about to mention had a song in the late 90s, early 2000s, like a swing song named after it. Yes. I know what you're talking about. (laughs) I do. So, there were a lot of moving parts that culminated in this particular event, and we're going to start with the Zoot Suit Riot. Zoot Suit Riot. They made it, like, a fun song, but it turns out it's no fun. No I'm actually, like... (laughs) Not at all. Low-key mad, like, now, like, after the fact. Mm -hmm. I have a distinct memory of sitting in my eighth grade social studies class with Mr. Jones, who was like the coolest teacher I've ever had in my whole life, and talking about this. And I do not remember learning this version of the story. Right. I don't remember learning about it whatsoever. So what does that say? We're going to learn today. Right. Way back in the 30s, dance halls, they were the place to be. Over time, dancers began to wear loose-fitting clothing. Not only did they make dancing easier, but this type of style accentuated their movements. Men often wore baggy pants that were cuffed at the ankle. Think, like, Dirty Dancing Havana Nights. Like, they have, like, this kind of, like, flowy, baggy clothing. I think of the mask. Very that. Because when he dances, when he's the mask, I swear he has a zoot suit on. Very that. There's... They've got long jackets, large shoulder pads, wide lapels. They've got glittering watch chains, and they've got fancy fedoras. This look came out of Harlem, but its popularity quickly made its way across the country. 
most importantly for our story, it became quite popular among young black and Mexican-American men. And as we have learned time and time again, affluent white people don't know how to handle that, (laughs) and they begin to fear what they don't like or understand. Over time, these young people that were rocking these suits, they began to be looked at as menacing street thugs and juvenile delinquents who wanted to be rebellious, literally only because of the clothes they were wearing. Isn't that wild? The fuck? Talk about profiling. Uh, (laughs) Bad. (laughs) Um, So once the U.S. entered the war, the way society looked at these suit-wearing men just worsened. There were many restrictions in place, which included the production of civilian clothing, and people began to look at the flashy outfits as a waste of resources. Even though there were plenty of bootleggers making all sorts of stuff, these men were still deemed unpatriotic, which led to servicemen looking at them with disgust. How? How is it that we haven't learned anything <laughs> No, uh, <laughs> as uh, a society? Literally nothing. Oh my goodness. I, we, we are, what did we just go through in our country in the last, like, six years? Like, mm-hmm. if you don't like a certain person in politics, you're all of a sudden unpatriotic. Like, and you are literally looked at as if you were the worst person. And then you have this, like, big racial aspect all to it. All of this, right. Oh, my God. Like, I'm, I'm already mad. <laughs> <laughs> um, tensions ran quite high between the zoot suitors and the white servicemen in and around L.A., specifically, because that's where our story takes place. I'm sure it happened in other spots. On May 31st, a clash between a uniformed sailor and um, some Mexican-American youths took place. The sailor didn't come out looking too great, which just enraged other sailors. The LA Times just put some fuel on the fire on June 2nd, 1943 by reporting, quote, fresh in the memory of Los Angeles is last year's surge of gang violence that made the zoot suit a badge of delinquency. Public indignation seethed as warfare among organized bands of marauders prowling the streets at night brought a wave of assaults and finally murders. A lot of racial buzzwords there. Murders. So what we've got is this fight that took place between servicemen and people who are looked at negatively. Mm -hmm. A article who basically was like, yeah, that Just fanning it, like, obviously it's a gang. Well, and especially, too, because the L.A. Times, like, they were so enamored with the police, like, at this time and moving forward for quite some time. I don't know if they were paying them off or, like, had them in their pockets or what, but it just stinks of bribery of some sort. Something was happening. Like, right. some weird connection or something was going on. Who knows? But either way, the day after that Times article was published... 50 sailors marched through downtown L.A. Many were carrying clubs and other types of crude weapons. Their intentions were quite clear. They began attacking people wearing a zoot suit or any other kind of racially identifying clothing, which, what the fuck is that even? Mob mob mentality I don't even understand what that means specifically. Like, I do, but... Oh. But, like, how and why? Guys. The thing that upsets me the most about this situation is the fact that it's servicemen. Mm-hmm. Like, have some goddamn honor. Like, what? Are, what? In, in we're in a war? Back then, I think they thought this was honorable, <sighs> unfortunately. I mean, you're probably right, and that just makes me The 40s were a wild up. time. It's infuriating. From what I've read. <laughs> <laughs> we would not do well in mm-hmm. the 40s. Nope. So... Over the next few days, 
things get really, really bad. This racially charged tension just exploded into full-on riots, which unfortunately we're not unfamiliar with at Mm -hmm. this point. Mobs of servicemen are just attacking people and stripping them of their clothing, beating them, and then just leaving them half-naked and bloodied in the middle of the street. Thousands of servicemen, off-duty police officers, and civilians just go absolutely fucking nuts. They even started going into businesses and just beating people up while they were watching a movie or shopping. Like, it literally got so out of hand. That's crazy. Things did not die down until June 8th. June 8th. That's five full days of this shit. (laughs) And that only happened, you guys, because the U.S. military barred its personnel from leaving their barracks. That's wild. Who knows how long this would have went on. Had they not done something. Had they been left to their own devices. The local city council, their response was to ban zoot suits. (laughs) And they just decided to work on, like, trying to move on from this horrific event. Throughout the 40s, the the LAPD experienced an attempt at reform, thanks to their mayor, Frank Shaw, at the time. This resulted in corrupt officers losing their jobs, the raising of standards, the creation of training programs, and better pay for the officers, hoping to... They wouldn't take bribes. (laughs) Yeah, and hoping to provide an environment in which they were trained properly on how Mm -hmm. to handle certain events, like the ones that we're about to get into. Police autonomy was guaranteed in the city charter that was written in 1934, and this felt like the mayor's attempt to right the power imbalance. At least he was trying, sort of, kind of, halfway. What really got (laughs) me was when you, I was reading your research, and the part where it was like police autonomy, and it literally was like, they they have a right to their job. The police officers are the only people that you would ever hear somebody say that. Right. Because anybody else, like you or I, we don't have a right to our job as service people. Not at all. It's just insane to me. This was the 50s, you guys. And they wrote it into their city charter. (sighs) Girl. (laughs) So anyways, by the time we get to Christmas of 1951, the relationship between the LAPD and the Mexican-American community was strained, to say the literal very (laughs) least. Um, The belief that this community was more violent and full of delinquents was still very much a thing for the officers, This is obviously considered racial profiling and very much not fucking cool. Nonetheless, it happened often and led to violent encounters between the police force and many civilians. So, unfortunately, what we're about to describe to you doesn't really surprise us, all things considered. No. On Christmas Eve, there were two officers that responded to a report of minors drinking alcohol. They arrived to the bar in question and they found seven men inside. Daniel, Elias, Jack, William, Raymond, Manuel, and Eddie, all of whom had an ID to prove that they were of legal drinking age. The officers told them to get out anyways, and when the group said no, the officers began to use force. Because that would be my first thing. That's the Mm. logical next step, Suze. Rude. This, of course, led to a full-on brawl in the parking lot, and both officers walked away with injuries. One had a black eye. The other cut that required stitches. Poor babies. The other seven men just went to their respective homes. Like, oh, okay, it's over. Great. Gonna go home. Whatever. Start again tomorrow. Seven hours later, however, all seven men were arrested. Six of them were taken straight to L.A. Central Jail. The seventh man, Daniel Rodella, was taken out of his house, was dragged to a squad car by his hair, 
during his quote-unquote arrest, he was then taken to um, Elsian Park, where several officers proceeded to beat the living snot out of him. He suffered multiple facial fractures and required two blood transfusions before even making it to the county jail. What the fuck? How's that okay? That's not okay. I read an article that they accused him or he allegedly threw, like, the first punch or something Mm -hmm. in this. I don't know. That checks out. So it's retaliation, like, at its finest. The next morning, there were many officers getting wasted at their departmental Christmas party. This was not allowed, but, like, many officers, they didn't fucking care. And at one point, the drunk officers find out about what happened the night before, and naturally it was an embellished version of the story. They become enraged. That's like the worst combo, drunk and filled with rage. And a police officer. <laughs> right. Like, because with a how person dare, in a position of power. How dare someone give a boy in blue a black eye? Like, you're a police officer. You're telling me you haven't had a black eye in your day? Right. Come on. They began to just rile each other up, and they concocted a terrible plan to exact revenge, which in and of itself is just such a gross thought. Mm. Also, it's going to be a terrible idea. I can already right. tell. Mm-hmm. Like you said, drunk, angry police officers. <laughs> right. This is not, not a good gonna end well at all. So uh, there were as many as 50 officers in on this quote-unquote plan. They all made their way to the cells that held the six men arrested the night before. They had the men come out and line up before proceeding to beat the living shit out of all of them for over 90 straight minutes. That's fucking insane. Right. All six prisoners suffered major injuries. Some had punctured organs. Others had broken facial bones. It was just a big, gigantic fucking mess. A big, bloody mess. Mm -hmm. The best or worst part, um, there were at least 100 people who either witnessed this event or knew of what happened and they literally all 100 of them did nothing not a thing i think that makes me more More mad (laughs) i didn't think i could get more mad and yet here we are you and i've had this discussion several times and i've told mark like i very much feel like if you're not part of the solution then you're part of the problem Mm -hmm. and this is a perfect example of that right because this how are you just going to stand by Innocent until proven guilty, motherfuckers. You are just the police officer. You are not intended to be judge, jury, and executioner. This is just so fucking ridiculous that we have to even have this conversation in the first place. (sighs) Sorry. This shit gets me so mad. Like, it makes me... Because we're still dealing with it. Right. We had to deal with the pandemic and full-on riots. Right. Like, in our own city... Well, and it was literally right down the street from where Mark and Brie live. It was right in downtown Erie. It's just wild to me. one of the most terrifying... I shouldn't say terrifying. That's almost a little bit more dramatic. But it was really scary. Oh, for sure. Something I never thought that I would live live through. Right. The history version that I was taught all through school made me feel like this was, like, a really great and idyllic place to live. And in a lot of ways, it is. And I'm very grateful to have grown up in this country. But and then there's the other side where shit's fucking wild like I would wild still like, like to get out. <laughs> like, please, someone. I want to live in a castle in uh, Ireland or something. God, <laughs> Maybe not great. Ireland because it's kind of damp, but Spain for sure. Ooh, let's do that. Mm-hmm. Castle in Spain. It's yep. the new goal. <laughs> Have cats in a castle in Spain. I oh love it. Oh, my God, yes. I love it. All the cats just roaming around. <laughs> so... Management for the LAPD made the choice not to disclose what happened for almost three months. Mm, Also not surprising. 
And when the news finally found out about what happened, they mostly focused on the brawl from the night before because, you know. Of course they did. Of course they did. It didn't take very long for the Mexican-American community to put pressure on the media because they were fucking pissed as they... As they should should be. They were entitled to their pissedness, for sure. Like, I just can't even... (sighs) And eventually the news did begin to write less favorably of the police department, which was kind of a big deal for the LA Times. Especially back then. And things like that. They started running stories questioning the tactics used by by officers, which, again, huge deal. And meanwhile, the six men who were arrested, they got charged with battery and disturbing the peace. Mm -hmm. And had to, like, begin the trial process. That just makes me want to, like, flip a table over or something. I'm so mad for If we were not encased in a fort of blankets and things right now. (laughs) A hopefully soundproof, echo-proof chamber, (laughs) if you will. I'm working on it. So, uh, during the court proceedings, the prosecution argued that the seven civilians had actually started the fight. The defendants countered, stating that it began once one of the officers started hitting Jack on the head. The judge actually, which is, I want to high-five the judge. Yes. Um, he actually allowed the defendants to describe the beatings they suffered post-arrest. That normally didn't happen. Again, he wanted people to hush-hush about stuff like that. Huge deal. Um, now, the jury did find the men guilty of two counts of battery and one count of disturbing the peace. As the verdict was read, however, the judge actually reprimanded the police force for their use of excessive force and brutality. What? And he then actually called for an independent investigation into the assault. Fuck Y'all. Fuck yes. Judge. Sir Judge. And I love this so much because the police chief was defensive, mm. to say the least, in the beginning of this. Okay. <laughs> this is just bananas. This is... I literally... Wild read this and like laughed out loud because it's the same shit that they're pulling now so the the police chief was like you know there's no way that we can have this investigation because this could weaken the public image that the police held and they needed to have the public support to prevent anarchy and lawlessness but like (laughs) they weren't doing a good job of that as it was in fact it almost seems like they're encouraging anarchy and lawlessness thanks He felt that the criticism of the department would damage the officer's ability to enforce the law. I I'm cannot. sorry. <laughs> what? Uh, You're telling me? This next part's hilarious also. He went as far as accusing criminals of making up reports of police brutality to get him fired. To get him fired. Specifically... So that the LA underworld could start up their illegal activities again. Like, he specified again. I was like, what? Like, they were living in this, like, no crime zone. It was fucking LA in the 50s. (laughs) Every, everybody was, there was so much crime. Oh my god. And then I put, (laughs) Suze put in her notes, I put, Suze was right, this dude is a wackadoodle. (laughs) He was just like, wow, that's just wild. You really think they have it out for you? All these people are making up the same story? It's the same thing that we're seeing now. Everybody's like, well, there's no possible way. I'm a police officer, or I'm this, or I'm that. Like, I'm this position of power that there's no way that I could possibly even consider abusing this position of power to do X, Y, Z. Doctors, coaches, like, there's been a lot of people that they're like, no, they're making it up. I'm like, all 25 of them are all lying about it? Well, look at what happened with your football team. Mm Mm-hmm. 
That's a perfect example. There actually was a re- there's a regular customer that comes in. He's also a Browns fan. Mm-hmm. He always chats with Mark about football. And right when that whole thing happened, he was talking to Mark about it, but he was also talking to me about it. And he's like, this is crazy. Like, I think they're making it up. And I snapped my head around. I was like, we are not having this conversation, sir. <laughs> like, we are not doing it. And Mark was like, not, no. Yeah, no. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. what are you doing? Like, I am slinging lattes. And you want to talk to me about... About, like, hot coffee coming rapist? for like, eyeball. Are... <laughs> I was like, yeah. sir, I am not the one. Like, everyone around me felt like the, the whole thing. The burning rage. Shift. I was yep. like, oh, no, sir. Not in my no, Starbucks. No, no. <laughs> Um, so our police chief in this story had no choice but to comply because not only is the public image bad, the judge is pissed, everybody's pissed. So internal affairs began to investigate. By the end of all of this, there was a 204-page report compiled. Internal affairs had talked to over 400 witnesses, many of whom were actually officers that really did sure did try to impede the investigation. <laughs> Assholes. Ah, I don't even have words for how mad I am. I know. I'm just wildly gesturing on my side of the room. <laughs> um, ultimately, this report led to grand jury hearings, which is a good step. The victims were allowed to advocate for themselves during this and gave super vivid testimony of the vicious beatings that they had suffered at the hands of officers. The officers, weirdly, were a lot more vague and more contradictory in their statements and their testimony. None of them could seem to actually remember the beating taking place, let alone who was participating in said beating. These hearings resulted in eight officers being indicted for assault. So, okay, at least there's some indictments coming down. There was a lot of, (laughs) I do not recall, in Mm -hmm. that whole situation. You do. You just don't want to say. I know. (laughs) I could almost see that some some of them might not recall, only because they would have had to have been so fucking wasted to even think this was a good idea in the first place. Well, because it said they were like... They were drinking <laughs> at their, I do, at their like, police I department. I questions about that, too, because also, like, what happened if there was an emergency? Who's going to come Who's rescue anybody? <laughs> nobody. Nobody. Load up the paddy wagon and just unload everybody. Stop it. Could Terrible you idea. <laughs> no. Oh, my God. I shudder to think. So, like Sue said, we got eight officers indicted for an assault. They were tried between July and November of 1952. Five of them were convicted and received jail time. Now, only one of them got more than a year, Mm. so not great. But, hey, 54 additional officers were transferred and 39 more got suspended with no pay. Despite the light sentences, this was still a huge fucking deal. Because this was the first grand jury indictments of serving LAPD officers, as well as the first criminal conviction for use of excessive force in the history of the whole department. The grand jury also criticized the senior officers of the LAPD for allowing the situation to happen in the first place. They made sure to, rem- to remind the department that it functioned, quote, for the benefit of the public and not as a fraternal organization for the benefit of fellow officers, end quote. You go. I want to high-five every person on that grand jury. Good. Again, though, that takes big balls to back then be like, no, we are going to proceed. We do need internal affairs. You know what I mean? Wrong is good. Every single person, like, there are some people out there who just do bad things. And sometimes they are in positions that they shouldn't be in. Right. Like you mentioned, coaches, 
Hollywood directors, right? Like doctors, teachers, teachers, doctors, mm-hmm. like all sorts of shit. This is definitely on the list. Oh, for sure. I'm just happy at least something came of it. I was happy that the community pushed to have, you know what I mean, like yeah. have their sons exonerated, if you will. It's just insane because I mean, I, I feel like I could probably speak for you too. Like, I remember the Rodney King riots being like mm-hmm. one of the first big moments like that right. that transpired in my lifetime. Well, and, and it helped in that instance because we saw every freaking minute of right. it. You know what I mean? And that was, what, in the 90s? Mm-hmm. Like, so I think the early 90s, yeah. And so while I was still young, like, that was kind of, like, my first introduction to, like, that part of the world. And then I grew up in a shielded environment. So coming into this where, like, nothing's changed. Right. And now doing, like dives into history events and all this stuff like it's really fucking depressing right <laughs> that we're just doing the same shit like every 10 20 it's years true. look at the pandemic guys, <laughs> we need to do better i know what are we doing <laughs> let's do better <laughs> all right so our next case is one that i had never even heard of until i started researching it it is one of Bree's favorite cases to talk about mm-hmm. apparently so surprise i literally was reading her research and I texted her I was like the fact that the Souter children's on here because I told her just to surprise me with what like mm-hmm. pick whatever you want to do and we'll and I'll just write the script and so that's what she did and I'm super excited hell yeah <laughs> so this is technically a disappearance um of the Souter children it's a bit mysterious and could be considered unsolved um there's a lot of um assumptions that are made in this case but nothing actually seems definitive like at all so let's get right into it the head of the family, George Sauter, was born in 1895 in Sardinia, Italy. When he was 13 years old, he and his older brother came to the United States. However, the brother didn't wind up staying for long. He literally made it through customs at Ellis Island and then turned his ass right back around and went back to Italy. George never spoke of why this happened, nor even any details on why he left Italy in the first place. Super weird. Mysterious. Mm. <laughs> George stayed in the U.S. and he began to work on the railroads in good old Pennsylvania. Initially, he was tasked with carrying water and supplies to the workers, but after many years, he began to work as a driver in West Virginia. Eventually, George was able to start his own business, which was a trucking company. He was able to grow this business into something reasonably successful. What started as just hauling fill dirt to... W- grew to carrying coal that was mined throughout the whole region. Because mines were the thing back in the day. It West sure Virginia, was. Pennsylvania. Oh, yeah. Um, George met his future wife, Jenny, while he was in West Virginia. She was a shopkeeper's daughter who had also emigrated from Italy in her childhood, so they were similar in that respect. When the couple decided to settle down, they bought a two-story timber-framed house in a town right outside of Fayetteville, um, the town actually had a large population of Italian immigrants, so it sort of makes sense why they would settle there, because yeah. like-minded people and all that jazz. For sure. Um, they started expanding their family in 1923, and life was pretty great. George's business was doing well. Um, they had become, quote, one of the most respected middle-class families around, end quote. They went on to have 10, count them, 10 children. Too many children. I like it off of me. <laughs> um, by the time the final child, Sylvia, was born in 1942, God bless this woman, she was pregnant for 20 like, years. so long. <laughs> um, the second oldest, Joe, had actually left home and was serving in World War II. 
It's so crazy. I have a younger sibling who's 10 years younger than I am, and that is such a lifetime. Mm-hmm. And it's so, I mean, granted, we didn't grow up in the same house because we're half-siblings, but, like, still, it was so difficult to have anything in common. Like, this dude's old enough to serve in the Army. Right. And he's got a baby sister. Isn't that wild? <laughs> like, I just, I don't know. I, I just read online, Flea from Red Hot Chili Peppers mm. is, like, 60. He just had a kid with his newest wife. Oh, jeez. His oldest child is 34. Well, I mean, That's okay, wild. so remember when I found out about, like, my biological father yeah. and all that jazz? So, like, my youngest sibling at the time was, like, just born. And so I think weird I was 21, me. and then I think he had another kid after that. That's just wild to me. I never met them, but, like, still. That's so, and, such a weird age gap. Like, what, what's, what if... What if you went to Christmas together? What would you have in common with a toddler? You know what I mean? That, like, right. What? That, like, that's... It's so weird. At least they all grew up in the same house, and they True. seemed like they were a pretty close family, so they probably had a completely different experience. Well, yeah. Yeah. You're right, girl. So, here is the caveat with this idyllic picture that we just painted for you. George very much held some strong political opinions, which I can vibe with, and he did not hesitate to let everyone know how much he opposed Benito Mussolini, which I can also I'm not going to lie. He was not a nice man. No. <laughs> so I would also oppose him just a smidge. And just in case you need a refresher, Mussolini was an Italian nationalist who had founded Italian fascism. He was prime minister of Italy from 1922 to 1925 and then continued to rule as the country's fascist dictator until 1943. Mm -hmm. He actually went on to be voted out of power by his own grand council, promptly arrested, and then eventually executed on April 28th, 1945. I'm pretty sure they just strung him and his mistress up from a lamppost. Pretty sure you are correct. Yes. Fun fact... This takeover of Italy was actually an inspiration of sorts for Hitler's Nazi party and subsequent awfulness. Wasn't Mussolini in with Hitler for a while? I would assume so. I think when the war first started, they were like, buddy, buddy. Well, I mean, that would make sense, because, I mean, Hitler admired men like him. So, you know, George, understandably, did not care for this man, and he was often vocal about it. And naturally, this led to many arguments and heated debates with other members of his community. I can commiserate with George. Mm -hmm. So while the family was well-respected as a whole, not everyone was well-liked. I mean... Hey. What is he doing wrong? What is he doing that's so wrong? That's that's what what I I don't get. I've got so many questions today. I just don't (laughs) understand. Sadly, we aren't getting enough answers. No. (laughs) I'm upset. But it's very interesting to discuss. Yes. So, let's fast forward to the evening of December 24th, 1945. That is Christmas Eve, if you are keeping track. Mm-hmm. Um, the family held their Christmas celebration earlier that day. 19-year-old daughter Marion had gifted her younger sisters with some toys from the dime store where she worked. 12-year-old Martha, 8-year-old Jenny Jr., because I think it's weird. I don't know. I, I know, know there's boy juniors, but... For the record, I don't actually know if the name was Jenny Jr., but it's since not. they're both Jennies... It's just easier because Jenny Jr. is the daughter, Jenny is the mom. It gets... It got confusing reading it, so I was like, I can't... It gets hairy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Martha, Jenny Jr., and five-year-old Betty were so excited to play with their new toys. They just wanted to play with them all day. They even asked to stay up past their bedtime that night because they wanted to play with their toys all night. Also, I get it. Party. <laughs> 
Um, at 10 p.m., Jenny told the young girls that if both their older brothers, 14-year-old Maurice and 9-year-old Louis, were awake and done with their chores, they could stay up and play. By this point, George and the two oldest boys, 22-year-old John and 16-year-old George Jr., were already asleep. The boys had helped their dad work whatnot all day, so everybody was just freaking tired. It's been a day. Right. So Jenny gave one last reminder to feed the chickens, put the cows in, and then she grabbed two-year-old Sylvia, and she took herself to bed. At 12.30 in the morning, the phone rang, and Jenny got up to answer it. She didn't recognize the voice of the woman on the other end, nor did she know the name the woman asked for. Jenny noted that the woman had a quote-unquote weird laugh, and she could hear... Uh, glasses clinking in the background of the call, like celebrations, right. toast kind or of or a vibe. bar type of thing was my thought. Oh yeah, I don't know why I immediately just went to like party because it was like Christmas Eve, but that makes could sense. could be one of the same though. You know yeah. what I mean? The horse piece. Um, so Jenny tells the caller that she has the wrong number and hangs up the phone, but she noticed at the same time that the downstairs lights were still on. And that the curtains were open. And it was unlike the kids to leave things like that. But when Jenny saw Marion sleeping on the couch, she was like, oh, you know, they probably just forgot with all the excitement. It's Christmas toys. Yeah, no big deal. Jenny takes care of things and she goes back to bed. At 1 a.m., Jenny, who probably, this poor woman, was probably not fully asleep yet. No (laughs) sleep. Ever. um, She heard a loud bang on the roof and then a strange rolling noise. 30 minutes later, she was awakened again, only this time it was by the smell of smoke filling the house. By this point, George's office, which coincidentally was the area around the phone, and the fuse box were all on fire, like fire, fire. (laughs) Um, Jenny immediately wakes George, who then goes and wakes up John and George Jr. The family go into survival escape mode, and they make their way out of the house, however... Only six of the 11 occupants actually made it outside. Hmm. Weird, right? Suspicious. George began to yell out to the children left upstairs, but couldn't hear a response. The remaining children shared bedrooms. There was two of them, I think, directly across the hall from each other, if I remember. Mm -hmm. And the stairway up to get them was already engulfed with flames. So George started looking for another point of entry. He climbed up the side of the house and broke an attic window. He goes to get his ladder. It was not there. He then had the idea of driving one of his coal trucks like right up against the house and climbing atop the cab. But when he went to start the truck, it wouldn't turn over. Frantic to do something to help his kids, he went to fetch the rain barrel, thinking that he could scoop water out of it or something. I think at that point he was just I think, yeah, grasping at straws kind of thing. His intention didn't matter because the rain barrel was frozen solid. Well, George is trying all of these different things to find a way to get inside the goddamn house. Marion runs to a neighbor's house. She tries to call the Fayetteville Fire Department, but there was not an operator response. A second neighbor also tried to call the fire department themselves, and they, too, got zero response from an operator. What the fuck? Mm. You had one job, literally, to plug things in and connect calls. I don't even understand how that happens. It should not happen. (laughs) Weird. Um, Over the next 45 minutes, George, Jenny, and four of their children basically just had to sit and watch the fire take their home, and likely their remaining family members right down to ash with it. Mm Mm-hmm. Because the fire department did not arrive on scene until the next fucking morning. <laughs> it was literally, 
I think they said seven or eight hours after the fire initially mm-hmm. began. Yeah. That's wild. And honestly, the only reason they knew about the fire in the first place is because their neighbor got frustrated with the lack of a response that they went and tracked down the fire chief themselves. Like, they literally drove into town and were like, fire chief, where the like, fuck hey, are you? Like, hey, hello, there's a fucking fire. Turns out that there weren't very many firefighters available in the first place due to the act of war. And the department relied on a phone tree kind of thing. Not if there's no freaking operator. The fuck? That's that's where this, that's the problem. Like, let's fix that part You first. use phone trees for, like, soccer moms and stuff like that. Not for right. the fucking fire department. They literally had to call each other when there was mm. an emergency. Like, look, okay, how, look how that went. Not great. Super well, right? So it was at 10 a.m. when the fire chief told George and Jenny that they hadn't found any bones in the ashes. And that... I think I misread it because I originally wrote that he didn't think that the fire had been burning hot enough, but I learned today after writing this that he actually did say he believed that the fire burned all the bones right down to ash. Modern professionals note, however, that the search was cursory at best, so they don't really, nobody knows what happened. It seems like the fire chief might have been a little pissed and maybe just kind of like glanced around and was like, hmm. Must be their ashes. I've done, like, surface-level research in, like, various parts of this cases over, like, the last few years just out of my own interest. And, like, I've never found anything that said that, like, they actively combed, like... Yeah. It's not like what they do now. Right. When something like this happens. Not at all. They were just like, hmm, it was a fire. It's Christmas. Gotta get home to my family. Right. Sorry yours just burned up. Like, what the fuck? (laughs) The fire was officially ruled as an accident due to faulty wiring, and the coroner actually issued death certificates for the children, I think, like, five days after the the fire. Yeah, no more than a week had passed. Yeah, which, that usually, that seems pretty fast also. Hmm, shaking my head. Um, Funeral services were also held, but George and Jenny actually couldn't bring themselves to even attend. They weren't completely sure, also, that they believed what investigators were saying. Nothing was adding up, and the Sauter family was just left with a bunch of odd circumstances. For example, (laughs) faulty wiring didn't make sense. The Christmas lights and some of the overhead lights were on during the early stages of the fire. If the wiring is faulty and causing a fire, there shouldn't be lights on. Correct. Right? You could literally, and it was like reported from eyewitnesses, Mm -hmm. that you could literally see the lights on like in the kitchen mm-hmm. or like wherever while this house was while burning. the fire was burning due to faulty but wiring. yeah it's a faulty mm-hmm. wiring mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so the ladder that was supposed to be in its usual spot was actually found almost 100 feet away it was literally like flung down an embankment yeah because mm-hmm. what well that's weird why'd that happen um the phone line had been cut but why no one actually really knows no I think somebody had asserted that maybe this person thought it was the power line. But I I believe that supposedly it was an accidental thing. The guy thought it was the power line because they found who did it. And he was like, oh, yeah, I did it. But it was the phone. (laughs) Dumbass. Nobody. But why? Mm, That's that's a great question. You just accept, like, oh, they meant to cut your power line. Oh, it's fine. It was, Go on you know, about your no day, Joe. <laughs> like, okay. Your, your house just burnt down completely mysteriously, but it definitely wasn't this guy who tried to cut your power. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't possibly be him. Um, why were the appliances found and recognizable after the fire, but the children's bodies had basically been turned into dust? 
I don't buy that either. Mm-hmm. Um, Jenny actually was so convinced that they were wrong that she tried testing animal bones to see if they would burn up completely, but they never did. Um, someone who worked at a crematorium actually told Jenny that bones are left after bodies are burned for two hours at 2,000 degrees. The fire burned within like 45 minutes. It was like yeah. everything was ashes. Hmm. What? Interesting. Hmm. So there was there was multiple children in that house, and you're telling me not one single remnant? Right. Not a one. Not one. But the stove is almost perfectly intact. Like, right. Not perfectly you could tell intact, it was a stove, like, though. You could see the refrigerator? Mm-hmm. Get the fuck out of here. Um, George also believed that the trucks were actually tampered with because during the, he was working the day of Christmas Eve, they were working just fine. Yeah. Hmm. But they wouldn't start when you needed them to. So weird. Um, and your phone line got cut. Right. For no reason. Interesting. Um, the older children actually noticed a car parked along the main road through the town and that the occupants were actually watching the younger children return home from school. So almost like they're trying to track their movements. That's not weird at all. Hmm. Not even suspicious. <laughs> you guys, there's also the fact that the family was threatened with fire on two separate occasions. Actual fire. <laughs> Literally said the words. There was one instance where George turned away someone that was looking for work. They were disgruntled and went back to the house and warned George that a pair of fuse boxes could, quote, cause a fire someday. Oddly enough, though, George had just had the house rewired because they had gotten a new stove, and the electric company stated that the wiring was safe. Hmm. That also throws a monkey wrench in your faulty wiring arguments. Especially if it's brand new. Like, come on, y'all. Could you imagine being George and being told that? I'd be like, you've, you've got to be fucking kidding bullshit. me. Bullshit. I call bullshit. There's no way. <laughs> the second threat came when a traveling salesman was trying to sell George some life insurance. The salesman didn't take too kindly to rejection and threatened George, saying that his, quote, house would go up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed. And that it would be payback for the, quote, dirty remarks he's been making about Mussolini. Y'all are nuts. So, okay. Two people mm-hmm. threatened this family mm-hmm. with, like, literal depiction of events. Mm-hmm. And Everything they're confused as to happened. what happened. Right. Hmm. Curious. I need them to be better. <laughs> Um, so evidence did later arise that indicated that the fire was started deliberately. Oh. No fucking shit. But it was faulty wiring, I thought. Right. This actually came in the form of an eyewitness. It was a bus driver that was passing through. Um, he stated he had seen people throwing, quote unquote, balls of fire at the house. Because what? This makes sense since the family actually, Sylvia, I believe, actually found what looked like a part of a pineapple bomb yes. hand grenade. At the scene after the snow melted. It was Sylvia. Mm-hmm. The Sodders don't believe that their children died that night, but that they were taken for some reason. There have even been some witnesses that have claimed to have seen the children in question. One woman um, said that she saw the children peering out of a passing car while the house was still on fire. There was another witness that claimed to have served the children breakfast the morning after the fire. The server noted um, there was a car with a Florida license plate in the parking lot. Which I would imagine is something that you'd pay attention to. Ah, uh, yeah. Especially in that West area. Virginia? Like, what are you doing here see, Florida? If, if they don't have an operator for Christmas Eve, I feel like they probably are in a remote area. Right. I just don't understand that. 
I just that's the one thing that really gets me about this case is that like there was just no emergency personnel at all on the scene. Not at all. And it seemed like the ones that did show up were like, mm, looks like a fire. They were like put out about. <laughs> They were, like, put out by the fact that they had to do the jobs they literally signed up for. There was a third witness, a woman who ran a hotel in Charleston. She claimed to have seen the kids about a week after the fire. She said that the kids stayed in her hotel with two men and two women, all of Italian descent. She claims that she tried to talk to the kids, but one of them, one of the men, like, shut that shit right down. It should be noted that the authorities do not consider her story credible. I couldn't find anything as to why. It didn't really specify why, but... I don't know. She was unsure of the date and the time and, like, several other things, so I think that was why, because she didn't seem very sure on anything except that she was like, it's definitely the Sauter kids. I just feel like... We saw sketches of what they looked like. Uh Uh-huh. They had distinct features. I feel like... In that time, you could probably pick out who had immigrated from Italy versus who didn't. Right. Like, I feel like after the fact, that doesn't surprise me. You're not noting specific things because you don't think you have to. Right. But until she sees something on the news or she is approached by, like, police officers or whatever, now all of a sudden it's important. You're not going to remember things because you weren't looking for them. Right. I don't know. She could also be making it up. I don't fucking know. You never know. Well, and then there was that picture Mm -hmm. that, so Jenny received a letter, right? Jenny received a letter in the mail. It was addressed to her specifically, not the rest of the family. It was postmarked from Kentucky, but there was no return address. And it was a picture that might could have been Lewis, one of her sons. Yeah. At this point when she received it, I think he would have been in his 20s. Early 20s, I remember, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly. But it was like his eyebrows matched and like his chin matched and like, like something Jawbone structure yeah. and things like that. And there was something written on the back that something mentioned about Lewis my brothers mm-hmm. and something. And then some weird numbers that nobody has figured out what they mean. Yeah. And then there's also the fact that they've hired private investigators, which, like, over the years, and one of them allegedly went missing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, supposedly he took the money, was supposed to reach back out to them, and just disappeared off the face of the planet. He probably just took the money. I hope. There's not missing PIs, like people are getting murdered. That you know puts I mean? a whole nother, like, level to this, though. Right. Which, I mean, considering, like, my personal theory, which I think you share, like, it wouldn't surprise me. Oh, for sure. Um, so George and Jenny were obsessed, but George was like, whoa. Yeah. Um, George actually reached out to the FBI, but was consistently turned down. It said J. Edgar Hoover actually responded personally to George's like, sure. letters and was like, we can't help you. This is not a matter of... of like our caliber basically Please cease and desist the letter right um the family actually resorted to putting up billboards and they did hire several other pis in addition to the man that went missing um george would often follow up leads personally traveling all over the country but he came up empty each time um unfortunately both jenny and george did pass away not knowing the truth about what happened to their children the surviving family believes that they were kidnapped by someone in the sicilian mafia who wanted to extort money from George or punish him for his beliefs about Mussolini yeah. or something nefarious that happened in 
Sicily before he got there. They said he might have been into some shady business, but again, he emigrated to the United States when he was 13, so I don't quite know how much shadiness you can get into. I mean... In the early 1900s? You never know. I mean, we don't know anything about his life there. Maybe he didn't come from, like, a super great situation. Either way, he was able to turn himself into something really great and had this great life and this great family. And it's just crazy to me that literally several children just, like, poof, and he's gone. And nobody... I think what stresses me out the most is the fact that they were so quick to just write it off yes. as like, oh well, they're they're burned up into ashes. <laughs> and then there's so let's like, not even search for them. It's just that's how it is. Let's not even consider the fact that maybe this person who literally told George that he was going to burn his house up and kill his destroy, like, destroy his, his children. children, like maybe that. I don't know. It's so crazy. Girl. This one's always so interesting to talk about because there's just so many. It's one of those ones that, like, the obvious answer just doesn't feel like the correct answer. Right. There's just too many other things, like the ladder and the trucks Mm -hmm. and the, you know what I mean? Like, all of those things. And, like, the phone line getting cut, I think, is, like, the most random and also such an interesting piece of information. It's just, it's wild. Oh, we meant to cut your power, so. And that was just acceptable? That was just the acceptable answer, and they're just it's cool. Jenny, you you guys are really overreacting. He meant to cut your power, right? That's totally fine. I don't know. It's absolutely nuts. It's wild. I hope someday we'll have some answers for that. Because again, it's children that went missing, like on Christmas. That makes me sad because I feel like we're at the point where we likely won't ever know. We won't. The last child had since passed away yeah like, sylvia I relatively recently passed away last year or the year before i believe 2021 but don't quote me on and that. the rest of the family had since removed the billboard mm-hmm. so that's been officially removed so it I was just, up I for know. years it said it was like the landmark marking that yeah. you were in fayetteville west virginia was this disturbing billboard about children missing it makes me sad because i definitely feel like we're just kind of at that point in history now where there won't be answers forthcoming. It's just another interesting case that for us to hypothesize about, I right. guess. So, our last case that we're going to discuss today is the Santa Claus bank robbery. You guys, this thing's this is also insane. I was re- <laughs> I read up on it and I read and then I started typing and I was just like, "This is crazy." It's like, every Y'all time, are wild. Every time I thought. I was nearing the end of the story. No, then there was another horrifying (laughs) onion layer of terror. Yes. Yes. We finally got our onion for the episode. It's the bank robbery. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This took place on December 23rd in 1927. It took place in Central Texas, a town called Cisco. The crime was committed by ex-convicts Henry Helms, Robert Hill, Louis Davis, and the ringleader, Marshall Ratliff. Bad man. Um, Marshall had previously been locked up for bank robbery, but was let out on parole just before he committed this crime. Initially, he had wanted to do this with his brother Lee, but since Lee was in jail, he roped in a couple of guys he knew previously, Henry and Robert, I'm going to guess from jail. (laughs) Um, Like, I mean, where else? The three amigos found a guy that was good with safes and thus completed their crew. Unfortunately for them... The day that all this was supposed to go down, the safe expert actually came down with the flu. 
So he had to pass on the job, which is how Lewis wound up, unfortunately for him, getting involved. Mm-hmm. Now, Texas banks were getting robbed left, right, and center. About three or four heists were taking place a day. That's crazy. <laughs> and, like, the Texas Bankers Association <laughs> promptly responded with just a stellar idea on how to stop these robberies. Their idea? Offer a $5,000 reward <laughs> to any person who shot a bank robber during the crime <laughs> being committed. Y'all are wild. What's Texas all about? Guns. Texas Guns and money. Right now. This added some extra complications to an already complicated plan for Marshall. He knew that pulling off a job like this with three other dudes would already be tough. Not to mention the fact that he would also be recognized immediately because he was a bank robber. That's what he did. Right. So his bright idea, dress up like Santa Claus. He actually borrowed the suit from his landlady and then put his plan in motion. So, these guys are real smart. First, they stole a car in Wichita Falls and arrived in Cisco early the next morning. The men parked several blocks away from the bank so they could let Marshall out of the car. He proceeded to just stroll right on down Main Street as if he did not have a care in the world. He would stop to talk to kids along the way. Everybody was in the Christmas spirit and didn't even think twice at seeing a Santa walking up and down the street. So the group comes back together in a nearby alley and they head towards the bank. Unfortunately, some of the kids followed them. They were super duper into seeing Santa that close to Christmas and they weren't ready to let him go on about his business undisturbed. Which, I mean, (laughs) he had to... He had to have thought about that, right? I just envision him, envision him like sauntering. Yes. I think saunter is the word. <laughs> yes, that's the perfect word. So Marshall was greeted with a hello Santa from the cashier when he entered the bank. He chose not to respond and just kept walking. By the time Marshall reached the desk that was in the middle of the lobby, Robert had entered the bank. He promptly raised his pistol and said, hands up, which I mean is so cliche. And I was not, like, that's the best you could come up with. <laughs> Henry and Lewis came in right behind Robert. They were also armed. Marshall did not enter the bank with a weapon. Rather, he took it from a drawer under the counter in the cashier's cage. So he was, like, very aware of where that gun was mm-hmm. in the building. Santa went on to demand the safe be opened. He immediately started stuffing the money and bonds into a sack he had brought from home. This wasn't enough for him, so he took all the money from the tellers and demanded access to the vaults. So all of this chaos is just exploding. A woman and her daughter enter the bank, because it's right before Christmas. I'm sure you probably need money to go shopping or do whatever. They were actually hoping to see Santa, which they luckily did get to do. (laughs) And they literally got the shock of their life. Because they sure did just walk in on Santa robbing a fucking bank. Could you imagine? I don't even laugh, cry, run away screaming. Like, I don't know. For me as a kid, I was always, you know, Santa was... I didn't know what Santa was until I went to kindergarten. And then I was told what Santa was. So if I would have seen that, no big deal. But for, like, any other child, your whole world had to have been shattered. Oh, for sure. He's got a gun and stuff? Like, whoa. (laughs) Um, So the men were busy. They were in the process of robbing the bank, and they didn't actually see these two girls come in. When the mother realized what exactly was happening, she tried to remain unnoticed, unfortunately. That didn't work out so good for her. No. Um, The robbers started threatening to shoot the woman and her daughter, but they pressed on and made it out the back door unharmed. 
The little girl ran out of the alley screaming for help, and she actually managed to get the attention of the chief of police. Smart little girl. The chief of police immediately went and grabbed a riot gun, and he just headed straight to the fucking bank. Two officers meet him there and cover the back door while the chief placed himself in the alley. This would put him near the front entrance of the bank. You picture it kind of like he had the vantage point to kind of like come around the corner mm-hmm. to like check out the sitch. Um, so the next thing you know, there's a shootout happening. No one knows for sure who shot first. Some say it was Santa, that he broke the plate glass window. They're thinking that maybe he did that as, like, a signal to the accomplices that, like, the jig was up. Others believe that it was Robert that fired first, that he saw someone and fired. And in this scenario, the shot was returned, which then caused Robert to start firing into the ceiling to, like, be like, hey, guys, like, we've got guns and shit. Right. Regardless, a crossfire began, and now the robbers had hostages. The very best part of this is that all that... All of that, random people just started showing up with their own weaponry, <laughs> and they joined the fight. Because they had that $5,000 reward Texas. if you shot a bank robber. I know, because Texas. <laughs> Y'all are wiling out. You they were said, doing it then, you're doing it now. They literally said people were, like, grabbing their guns from their cars. They were going to the hardware store and buying guns to use <laughs> in the shootout. I was just like, what in the fuck are y'all thinking and this is only the beginning, guys. And keep in mind, there's random hostages, people in the bank, right. people on the street, and then just bullets flying around all willy-nilly. <laughs> it's not going to end well, y'all. No. <laughs> so the postmaster and his assistant were part of this crowd of armed people. Um, <laughs> one of them struck one of the robbers in the arm. Unfortunately... They also struck a couple of the hostages. I'm mm. like, guys, you can't just be shooting your guns off all over the place. Just shoot it all willy-nilly. <sighs> One of the hostages, who was a customer, attempted and succeeded in getting out of the bank and was able to inform police about the fact that there were hostages. So this couldn't go on forever. The men robbing the bank came up with a stupid plan to try and get out unscathed. They had the hostages basically act as human shields as everyone was emerging into the alley. I envisioned it like that Bob's Burger episode. That's literally what I pictured also. And he's just, they're just in the middle of like a ball of humanity pretty much. you guys have matching shoes. (laughs) No, but I pictured the same thing, only like more gross and not as fun. Right. More Mm -hmm. terrifying. Mm -hmm. Um, Several of the hostages sustained some type of injury. Most of the hostages were able to escape, except for the two girls that were kept by the robbers. These giant human poop stains um, <laughs> used a 10- and a 12-year-old girl to shield themselves from gunfire on the way to their getaway car, which they successfully got into. My question, though, is how much did a 10- and 12-year-old I know, unless you're actually, like, like, did you carry them? Maybe they were hoping that nobody would Which shoot is Texas, the- but dear God, they were hoping nobody would shoot. That was at them. your first mistake, Marshall. <laughs> well, you not your first. Known better. I was well, like your it, it's on the list, at least, <laughs> at the very least. So, at this point in things, over one hundred shots have been fired. One hundred <laughs> over, like, and I that's feel like crazy. that's lowballing it. Six civilians were injured, and there were two deaths. An officer and the chief actually had died. Lewis Davis had been hit as well, and he was not doing so hot. 
Marshall had been shot twice, one in the leg, the other in the chin, and he was also suffering, but he made it to the car. All four of the robbers did. An officer pursued them on foot before getting picked up by a civilian, and they just continued the chase together. They were like, like, beep, beep, let's go. Vroom, you know what I mean? Like, in what? the car, loser. We're going on a chase. <laughs> we're going on a mob thing. This mob of people that joined in on the shootout, they also participated in the chase itself. The robbers were on their way out of town, but they soon realized that, you guys, they were almost out of gas, and they had a flat tire. Dumbasses. They didn't even check. Just to go back, the police chief did actually basically stand in front of the robbers between them and the car and was like, fuck around and find out. And unfortunately, it did not end well, yes. So he really did put his life on the line to try and stop them. The fact that he literally was like, all right, got my riot gun, let's go. (laughs) I was like, riot gun? Like, what? I'm here for that energy, but... What kind of crazy small Texas town are we in right now? Like, the Twilight Zone? No place I would like to visit. (laughs) Everybody had guns. I just envision little children pulling pistols out of, like, their (laughs) baskets on their bikes. Like some Futurama shit. Yeah, basically. (laughs) I was like, oh my. So, at this point, the men are like, well, fuck. We have a flat tire. We're almost out of gas. So, what do they do next? (laughs) They carjack a 14-year-old boy. For, um, first of all, why was the 14-year-old again, driving? I think they didn't have rules back then. <laughs> like, you know how to Texas drive. Texas always be doing whatever it Go was. on ahead and drive, I guess. You know what I mean? <laughs> so uh, the robbers move all the goods, the loot, the hostages, their injured co-conspirator, into the other car, all while a hail of gunfire raining down upon them. When they go to leave, however, they couldn't find the keys. This is because, I think his name was like Woodrow Wilson Peterson or something, and I was just like, oh, okay. This kid was no dummy. He actually took the keys from the ignition and slyly slid them into his pocket before exiting the car. They didn't have fucking keys for the fucking car. I love that. I was like, pa, you got played by a 14-year-old. Well, especially, like, from outward appearances, it looked like the kid was just like, okay, like... Yep, here's the car kind of thing, which he did to an extent, but man, yeah, so smart. I don't know that I would be able to think on my toes like that. Me either. Like that. I would just be panicking, Good. being and like, don't shoot kid me. was 14. Good job, Woodrow. Mm-hmm. Um, so, again, the robbers all have to adjust their plan. They grab the hostages, get back in their original car. They just left an unconscious Lewis and literally all of the money in the second car, but nobody actually realized that until later. Could you imagine? I would have loved to have been in that car. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> like the moment when they were like, oh, yeah, fudge. Just to be a fly on the, on the wall and just be like, you guys, where the fuck, where's the money? Yeah, with oh, Lewis, with unconscious Lewis. Mm-hmm. Not being protected at all. So the mob of people finally catch up. They come upon Lewis. They chill out for a second. He's picked up by an ambulance because, again, he ain't doing so good. The money is given back to the bank. The three remaining robbers left the car and hostages several miles from town and continued their escape plan on foot. Because what? What could possibly go wrong, Bree? More citizens <laughs> and more officers from the neighboring county joined in to help, and they for, they formed search parties. I would like to say I think search posses is more like it because <laughs> it's Texas. I just envisioned 10-gallon hats and riot guns <laughs> everywhere. Everybody has one. Toddlers and all. Mm-hmm. 
The search parties found some bloodstained gloves and, like, rags and things like that, but nothing really of note, nothing really surprising considering that everybody was bleeding. Despite everything, the men managed to evade being captured. They stole a car the next morning, which they promptly wrecked because it's December. Dumbasses. I think that they wrote... Now, it's December in Texas, so that's not, like, here, but, like, I think that they had, like... It still gets cold, though. A frost. They're, like, Yeah, the road was slick. Cars back then were made of solid steel, but they weren't exactly, like, wonderful. Well, none of the men were hurt in the crash, but the car didn't really, like, make it out too well. But don't worry, they stole several more after this. Eventually, the men decided, they're like, okay, we're gonna just head back to Crisco... We're going to try to hide in plain sight because, like, physically they weren't doing well and they needed to just stop. Like, they needed to just be somewhere. Which is why the marshals and the police officers were like, no, we got to keep going because we yes. need them tired. We need them injured. Yep. We need them hungry. We exactly. need them just worn out. Which is where we eventually find them. They end up getting ambushed by officers in South Bend, Texas. I think technically two mornings after the robbery within a few days marshall got captured but the other two men were able to get away okay after a manhunt though the last two were arrested in graham texas on december 30th so everybody is tried and convicted the one who was responsible for the death of the officers actually received a death sentence another pled guilty to armed robbery and was sentenced to 99 years in prison Santa received the same. However, he was later given a death sentence for his role in the officer's death as well. Um, After the execution of one of the robbers, Marshall, a.k.a. Santa, begins to act strangely. This was, when I got to this point in your research. Diabolical. I was like, this is a whole other fucking Diabolical. Um, This led his mother to file for a lunacy hearing. So while he was waiting for this new trial to happen... Marshall actually um, feigned having paralysis. So it went as far as two deputies having to feed him, bathe him, get him to the potty, like the whole nine yards. all of the things Mm -hmm. for him. When it turns out he was perfectly capable of doing it all himself. Big faker liar pants. (laughs) Um, He actually eventually got his hands on a gun and wound up killing one of the deputies. The other one was not having it and managed to beat Marshall down, got him back into his cell, and locked him up in there. The next morning, because we're still not done. The (laughs) next morning, a crowd gathered outside the jail. Over the course of the day, many more joined. By nightfall, there there was approximately 200 people. Super pissed. They were hella mad, and they were just demanding Marshall's death. The, de- the deputy refused, because I don't think he gets to make that call. Yeah, no. But he was overpowered by, yet again, another mob of people. <laughs> um, an armed mob. <laughs> These random motherfuckers literally got into the jail, pulled Marshall from his cell, and they proceeded to hang him behind a theater. It took the mob two tries, but by 10 p.m. that night, Marshall was dead. No one was ever tried for the lynching, apparently. <laughs> and you guys... This is the part that really just makes me wonder what is happening to Texas. <laughs> Y'all are buck wild. <laughs> they put the body on display in a furniture store? Like just on a mattress? On the floor? Like <laughs> There were no details other what? than that. And several thousand people traveled to view it. 
Eventually, a judge had to order for his body to be removed and dealt with, and that was the only reason why <laughs> it was taken out of the fucking furniture store. They used to do that with, like, Billy the Kid and stuff. Like, when they were dead, they just, like, prop them up in their coffins. Like That's so weird. In town. You know what that made me think of? Remember that Fred's furniture store that was over on yes. 12th and, I think, French? Yeah. That's, like, the... The vibe that I thought of, with, like just like big panel glass, but like glass. old timey, like everybody can just look in and see. Yeah, you just like so walk by and see like and weird I, dead body. <laughs> the the crowd of people had far too much power in this situation well, from every, start to finish. Everybody was armed. Oh, dear God, I mean, I'd I be would, like, I mean, I guess if I was a deputy. I'd be like, Would you like me to unlock the door for you? <laughs> right. I don't know what happened. Here are the Here's keys. The keys. I'm gonna get the fuck out of here. <laughs> in total, the robbers actually managed to get away for a brief moment. Um, over with over twelve thousand dollars in cash, which is approximately two hundred and twelve thousand dollars in 2022 money crazy and $150,000 in savings bonds remember though they left it in the car so nobody got a damn thing so all of this was done for literally no reason no purpose whatsoever um so after everything was over there were approximately 200 bullet holes in the bank this number is an estimate and some people have stated that it is likely far too low um, many people were injured throughout all of this madness, and six people wound up losing their lives as a result. This event was considered one of the greatest van hunts in the history of West Texas. An eyewitness wrote about what he experienced, and according to him, this was, quote, the most spectacular crime in the history of the Southwest, surpassing any in which Billy the Kid or the James Boys had ever figured, end quote. That's in Wild. Scene. Again, how many guns does Texas have? All of them <laughs> is the answer. <laughs> it's actually really funny. And no hate if you're from there. I, no, like, not I, at all. I don't mean to poke fun, but also, like, you guys kind of scare me. <laughs> this is, like, the epitome of, like, arm arm yourselves. Like, well, oh, my Lord, the, the right to bear arms is strong in Texas. It's not even... We're not knocking it. It's just, I don't know. I feel like in the 20s, it was sort of like a Wild West scenario. No, I agree. I definitely so there feel weren't like rules. it was completely different than it is now. Especially, I want to know who these people were that offered $5,000 for a bullet-ridden bank robber. There wasn't any other bad, idea that bad. you guys could have That's come up with. a horrible with. idea. Literally anything. Any other offer on the table. Besides That's shooting what you people? Picked? Okay. Okay. I don't know. I mean, I guess. <laughs> it was funny because there's a storm on its way, essentially, and... My brother was like, oh, maybe we should, you know, consider getting, like, extra blankets or this, that, and third. Like, I remember what happened to Texas with that one storm, and I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Probably not going to happen to us. Right. <laughs> they do their own thing down there. Right. And then I started researching, like, getting into this, and I was like, this is hilarious. <laughs> like, to be fair, <laughs> it is ingenious to wear a Santa. He wore a Santa oh, beard yeah. and a hat and the whole nine yards, and when they actually put out, like, wanted posters. Did they put him it in was Santa? A, it was just a picture of Santa. Oh, geez. It wasn't even a picture of him. It was just Santa Claus. Stop it. Yes. I was like, come on. <laughs> so is every Santa in Texas getting, you know, apprehended well, by mobs of armed people? You know, and something that I didn't think of, but you had noted in your research that children were suddenly, like, really scared of Santa. Mm-hmm. Like, seeing other Santa, like, a mall Santa, perhaps, was like... There was... The story was, like, a little boy was in church with his family, and Santa came in on Christmas Eve, and the little boy was, like, borderline hysterical, and he was like, Santa, 
Why would you rob that bank? Oh, no. Like, ti- all tiny Tim-like, and I was like... Stop it. No, that's horrible. Little babies oh, scared of no. Santa. Oh, man. <laughs> well, and on that note... Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is where we're going to leave things today. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. Now, I don't expect anybody to listen to us on Christmas because oh, y'all sure. got stuff to do. But on the Maybe off the chance day after. that you did or at any point in which you ever listen to us, thank you so much because we really appreciate that and we appreciate you. Make sure that you guys are following the podcast on Instagram and Facebook. We're at Crime and Spirits Pod. On Twitter, you can find us at Crime Spirits Pod. If you would like to follow our own personal shenanigans, you can find us on Instagram. I am at Brie, B-R-E-E underscore not the cheese. And I am Suze, not Susan. We don't have complexes about our names at all. It's mm-hmm, just Every a time. smidge. <laughs> just a little bit. Um, also, guys, if you just please consider leaving us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever your preferred platform is that you're listening on, we would love the feedback and it would really help us get out there a little bit more. So if you can, thank pretty, you pretty in please. advance. Um, if you do have a case recommendation or if there's something specific you'd like to talk about, don't hesitate to shoot us a message, reach out, just let us know. We're always open to new ideas. Hit your girls up. And the very last thing, my darlings, stay safe out there. The holidays times can be a really fun time, but it can also get dangerous. People might be a little bit more loosey-goosey. And of course, like, we're obviously promoting, like, having a drink, hanging out, and we want you guys to just be smart make sure that you're staying home don't be getting behind the wheel of a car there's no excuse for it anymore there's ubers there's lifts i'm sure Mm -hmm. that you have a friend or family who would much prefer you to call them in the middle of the night rather than getting a phone call that you're hurt right so safety first drinking and driving is not cool just be careful that's all we ask that's all we ask thank you so much and we love you and bye bye